Hey folks, Brian here. Before we get started, I just want to ask those who are listening who have not done so to please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. And to those who have already done so, thank you very much, and please tell a friend. Now then, on with the show. episode number 27 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, not too much has been going on since I recorded and posted episode 26 about, what, three weeks ago? Uh, everything is slowly opening up here in the state of Michigan, so, you know, I'm just working and trying to keep everything on an even keel. Um, most of the arcades, I think, are going to open at the end of the month. I think on the 27th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, unless, of course, the governor decides to postpone it by a certain amount of time. Uh, let's see. Um, so, yeah, I've just been playing Elite Dangerous. Um, I actually played Nova Drift last night for the first time in a couple of months. Um, playing some stuff in emulation and so forth you know, research for the podcast, of course. And, of course, you know, uh, watching videos on YouTube and also uh, streams on Twitch, you know, as, you know, this pandemic continues and, you know, things are slowly, ever so slowly going back to normal. Uh, I did run a check of the emails, uh, nothing there. So, once again, I will say if you want to email the show, if you have a video game that you want to talk about or you want me to cover or talk about if I haven't already, uh, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, I have a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, social media is up and running. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. That'll take you right to the page. I also have a uh, discussion group uh, linked alongside that page. So if you have a question or uh, a statement or anything like that, something you want to talk about, go right ahead. There are people who are following that page as well. And if you want to ask questions or you know want to talk about a certain game, go right ahead. You know, people are there, and we can all sort of interact and commiserate and pool our knowledge, if you will. Also, uh, let's see. Uh, my Twitter handle is arcadeaddict underscore b. My Instagram account is arcadeaddictbrian, and Tumblr is tumblr.com/blog/confessions of an arcade addict. 
so you have multiple ways of getting hold of the show if you're so inclined and if you are don't be shy i'm here okay so i've got quite a bit to talk about in this episode so let's just jump right into it story time Bodies are given life in the midst of nothingness. Existing where there is nothing is the meaning of the phrase, form is emptiness. That all things are provided for by nothingness is the meaning of the phrase, emptiness is form. One should not think that these are two separate things. Story time. How I got a job at the Nintendo kiosk at the mall. Oh, uh, let's see... The time was September 1990. Uh, I had gotten a job in the mall that I'd always hung out as a child and a teenager. Um, I'd finally gotten through the depression that struck me in the spring of 1989 after I got back from Vancouver and only to find out that my world had changed a lot in that space of 17 months. Uh, Two of my favorite arcades had closed down uh, and the last time I had a good arcade experience was when I actually was in Vancouver. Uh, Life was moving on, so I just finally figured that I should move along right with it. Um, A friend of mine suggested that I apply for a job that he he worked at, so I did, and I got it. Um, Earlier that week, uh, my best friend growing up, the man I named my son after, had been shot and killed. Um, I remember the first day at my new job, I had to ask the manager to clock out early so that I could fly home on my bike and take a shower and change my clothes, then get back on my bike and make the run over to the church where the funeral was being held on the east side of town. Um, That was a real rough time for everybody in the neighborhood and especially the family. Um, Like I said, I named him, my son, after him. And, you know, I named my son after my two best friends, actually. So... Um, I figured what better way to honor both of them because they both had uh, major impacts in my life in their own own specific ways. Okay, um, smash cut to about a year later, um, right around summertime 1991. Um, A new Nintendo kiosk had opened in the mall and a lot of kids would hang out here after school, during school, time and then in the summer also. Uh, I still had my job in the food court. Um, I had found a new group of friends to hang out with um, and I got two of my friends uh, a job at that same restaurant that I was working at. Um, I made inroads with both uh, Anthony, the manager of the kiosk, and Dave, the assistant manager. And through the months, I would go there after work every day, uh, play games, Uh, with uh, a bunch of other kids who would come by and play games on that kiosk and the battles we had at certain games were pretty much epic. So I'd say probably about two and a half, three months went by in this fashion. And then, you know, once September and October come through the mall, especially after Halloween, that's when the mall starts turning everything towards Christmas. So I went, I remember going to the kiosk one day after work and Anthony told me that, um, actually he didn't tell me there was a sign up saying that help, you know, help wanted and that kind of thing. And I was like, Hey, you know, I would, you know, I'd take this job if you're offering it. 
sure. And he's and Anthony was like, okay. And then, like, I want to say maybe like 30 minutes after I talked to him about it, this kid Mike came up, and he, he was a regular there. He played games along with us, and he basically said the same thing. And Anthony kind of looked at both of us and just basically said, all right, um, both of you guys fill out an application, bring it in, and I'll interview you both. And whoever I think can do the better job here, I'll hire. So I remember I took my application. I went home, fully filled it out. Um, then after I got done with my job at the restaurant, I you know went up there and you know turned in my application and Anthony interviewed me. I remember right just after my interview was done, Mike had walked up and you know Anthony being a fair-minded guy, you know he basically wanted us to start at the same level. Um, I had more work experience and I was older than Mike. I was 22. Mike, I think, was like 17, maybe 18. And But I have to give him a lot of credit because he went all out to try and impress Anthony. He showed up uh, right after I was done with my interview in a suit and tie. I think he knew he was at a disadvantage because of his age, but that didn't stop, stop him from trying his best. And you know, I respected him for that, and Anthony did too, I think. So now I had two jobs. I would work my restaurant job early in the morning and get out just after the lunch rush and then uh, work three times a week at the kiosk. I would more or less, I believe, yeah, I basically would come up to the kiosk about two o'clock and I would stay from like two until the mall closed at nine o'clock. So that was pretty much what I did. It was, it was and remains the most fun and rewarding job I ever had in my life. And it probably sowed the seeds of my dreams of owning an arcade and running it. Um, most of the guys who would come by and hang out and play games still would do so. And I told them as long as they didn't abuse the privilege, they could play as long as they wanted. Um, but if there was a potential customer who wanted to see a particular game they wanted to purchase, uh, they had to give it up immediately. Um, the main event, excuse me, the major event around this time was that the Super Nintendo had rele been released prior to my being hired, and from everything I saw, it was an instant hit. There were still a few NES diehards still holding on, but mostly ev everyone else was on to the new and better thing. Um, I had had fun playing with my friends Chris and Matt after work, um, selling games to and systems to customers. I had that job from late October of 91 until the kiosk was closed down, I think, in February of 1992. Um, I think if I couldn't swing the prospect of owning and running an arcade, I think I'd be happy running a mom-and-pop video game store and sticking it to places like GameStop. <laughs> Although, though in light of recent news, they're doing a great job of doing that to themselves. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, just run a Google search on GameStop, some news articles will come up about how they've completely screwed themselves. But yeah. So yeah, that's my story time for when I had a job at the Nintendo kiosk. Um, any thoughts, questions? <laughs> if you happen to be in uh, the Bridgeport area back in those days <laughs> and you remember this kiosk, by all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, with that done, let's move on to the next one. Are you experienced? I'm too old for this. 
Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hobie, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arsed in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Pleiades. This game, I, I love this game. I still do. Um, I've played it in every time I've seen it in an arcade. I would play it. Um, I played it in emulation. The arcade Brighton has a, or they had a Pleiades machine. I think they moved it off the floor. But yeah, this was a great game. And, you know, uh, so I decided to talk about it here. Okay, uh, going from Wikipedia, of course. Uh, Pleiades is a fixed shooter arcade game released in 1981 by Tekon, which is now Tecmo, and licensed to Centuri. Uh, the name is shown on the title as Pleiades, P-L-E-I-A-D-S, when the game is actually, well, I think they meant to say Pleiades, which is P-L-E-I-A-D-E-S, but, you know, it's okay. Uh, the title comes from the mythical Greek uh, goddess Pleiades, one of the seven daughters of the Titan Atlas. Uh, it is a multi-stage shoot-em-up, which enemy ships fly at the player in waves similar in fashion to games like Galaxian and Phoenix. Ships emerge from a mothership at the top of the screen and swoop downward in a series of patterns which the player must anticipate as they shoot the ships to, and avoid being obliterated by the Martian onslaught. There are four stages in the game. In the first stage, the Earth spaceship must defend the space station from Martian invaders who have the ability to transform from flying invaders to walking invaders who build walls across the Earth's city. These barriers must be destroyed. Uh, at the end of stage one, the Earth spaceship flies to the top of the screen to prepare to meet stage two. In the second stage, the player encounters eight space monsters who must be di hit directly on center to be destroyed before moving on to stage three. In this stage, invaders emerge from a spaceship at the top of the screen and swoop down on the player in sweeping attacks. In the final wave, the player has to navigate through parked spaceships to dock it on a landing pad as the screen scrolls downwards. Extra points can be gained in this stage by collecting flags as the player moves towards the landing corridor. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Pleiades is included in the Tecmo Hit Parade collection for the PlayStation 2, which includes seven classic arcade games from the publisher's past, as well as the 11-game compila compilation Tecmo Classic Arcade for the Xbox. Pleiades appeared in the 1983 horror film Nightmares in the vignette Bishop of Battle. By the way, I remember that movie. <laughs> it was on HBO a lot. I think it was sort of like... Um, like... Uh, a lower budget version of creep show but i remember the bishop of battle uh vignette because that one was this guy who was like obsessed with beating this one arcade game and well it didn't turn out so well for him i bet you could probably find this vit vignette on uh youtube or something oh let's see pleiades also made a cameo appearance in the 1984 coen brothers movie blood simple Richie Knuckles holds the official Guinness World Record for this game with 279,090 points recorded on June 4th, 2011 at the annual Classic Video Game and Pinball Tournament at Fun Spot in Weirs Beach, New Hampshire. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, let's see. The first time I saw this game was either at Spanky's or Milford Rec. Um, I immediately saw this game as a sequel to Phoenix, even though there is no official word on that matter. I think it was because the of the similar yet more challenging gameplay. I've always loved this game from the first time I played it. Played it in emulation. I used to play it in the arcade in Brighton before it was rotated off the floor, like I said. And I think it's one of the more underrated games from the classic era. At the very least, it deserves its place right alongside Phoenix. That's just how I feel about it. Okay, so with that done, let's pivot right on to time for some strategy. Okay, time for some strategy. Uh, with Pleiades, these come this what I wrote down on my notes and what I'm going to convey to you is pretty much my experiences with the game and how you know I was able to get halfway decent at the game. Okay, so uh, this game is similar in gameplay to Phoenix, but it's harder in some ways. Um, the first screen is interesting that there are destructible environments around. Destructible by the aliens, that is. That's good news for you because you can use certain objects for cover uh, for one shot. Because the aliens, as they come up from the horizon, or they come from side of the screen or the top of the screen, once they get near you, they'll start bombing you. So you can actually use the terrain for a little bit of protection. Although I, I try not to rely too much on it because, yeah, if you stay too long in one place, they kind of zero in on you and then you're done. Uh, let's see. Also on the right side of the screen, there are two laser satellite turrets that fire every 10 seconds or so. Uh, that can help you with the pesky aliens if you time it right. Uh, unfortunately, they can be hit by enemy fire and destroyed. Uh, my secret, not secret, but the way I handle that is to stay in the middle towards the right-hand side of the screen. Um, if there are aliens coming out from the left side of the screen, um, I usually try to stay towards the center, and usually if the timing is right, those laser turrets will uh, destroy a couple of aliens. You still get points for it, by the, by the way, which is kind of cool. Um, let's see. The aliens look like two square uh, circles with two square eyes above them and are very small. A number of enemies will come at you from the top and the sides, bombing you as they go, and they're worth 30 points apiece. Sometimes they'll come down, change form, and lay bricks in a horizontal line. If you destroy it in this form, it's worth 80 points. And then they can transform into pink line green saucers that are worth 150 points. When you destroy all but two, the scenery turns pink, which tells you you are close to the end of the level. When you shoot all but one alien, it accelerates greatly in its movements, making it much, much harder to hit. If you do, you get 30 points plus 100 points times the number of the wave that you're on. You blast off from the surface of the planet, and it's on to stage two. From here, you're assaulted by a small saucer-shaped craft. Shooting them is worth 50 points. 
After about five to ten seconds, they grow into these wild, wide, mildly disturbing aliens with mouths. Uh, they can swerve from side to side as they descend, looking to either hit you with their bombs or to ram you. You can wing them for 20 points, and from there they will descend straight down. You can only destroy them by shooting them in their mouths. An uninjured one is worth 100 points. One with one wingtip injury is worth 200 points, and one that has two wingtip injuries is worth 400 points. As with, the with, as with the previous stage, when there are two left, they will turn pink, and then the last one will be moving very, very fast. Stage 3. Uh, this is a space station with five portholes in them and a plume of engine thrust under each one. You can finish the level one of two ways by destroying all of the aliens that will come out of the portholes or the sides of the screen, or by shooting all five portholes when they open seemingly at random. Um, each porthole you shoot is worth a number of points that you don't collect immediately. Um, if on the first wave, you know, on the first level, it's 100 points for the first porthole, 200 for the second, uh, 400 for the third and so on all the way up to 1600 points for the fifth one so uh, as you go along in the game this is where you get the majority of your points because uh, the second wave starts at a base of 200 the third at 300 the fourth 400 five 500 and so on um, there have there has been one time where I think the I think I went to like the eighth stage or something. So it goes 800, 1600, 3200, 6400. And I think it tops out at like 9,000 9, or something like that. I don't think it goes past uh, 9,000. But uh, yeah, so the, your best bet, if especially if you're going for points, is to try to shoot all the portholes. Um, while you're waiting for the portholes to open, the aliens will attack you, of course. The trick is to evade the aliens and shoot them until there are three. Uh, don't go lower than two. Try to stay with three. Um, because if by some accident uh, you shoot one of the remaining two, the last one, of course, speeds up and he's much harder to evade while you're trying to shoot port shoot at the portholes. Um, and once again, uh, when you get down to, to two the station changes color from like this green with blue highlights to blue with pink highlights. Um, if you shoot all five portholes or you destroy all the aliens, the station explodes. Um, of course, if you shoot all the aliens, you only get a number of bonus points equal to the number of portholes you shot. So it, it always behooves you to be a little greedy, but not too greedy. Um, if you somehow shoot one of the last two aliens and you only have one it's just easier just to get just to shoot him get off the level and move on to the last stage so in the last stage uh stage four is not easy to start with and it becomes the hardest part of the game in short order um you receive an sos and you're on a final approach to earth you f you'll find your shift your ship tends to drift one way or another, and you have to course correct to keep it moving in the direction you want. If you move too far in one direction, then all of a sudden your ship moves in that direction. You have to course correct back the other way. It's really, really weird sometimes. Um, 
you're coming up fast on a runway with spacecraft parked on it and there are also flags like the wikipedia said your speed will be fast to start but you slowly lose velocity the further along you go the trick is to avoid the parked spacecraft and weave a path to the target at the end of the runway which is your uh parking spot more or less uh, it's tempting to go for the flags for extra points, but in the later levels, doing so puts you in really dangerous situations. Be easy with your movements, as the uh, if you try to move too much in one direction, the inertia will become too great to overcome. So you can like go with you can basically go really fast to one direction, and then as you're moving in the other direction, your ship will slow slowly keep moving that way until it stops and goes back the other way. And in later stages, when there are multiple, numerous uh, spaceships parked on the runway, that can lead to you losing your life really easily. Um, if you reach the end of the runway and land more or less in the center of the target, you get a bonus score ranging from 500 to 4,000 points. And it's back to stage one, only this time it's harder. And it just keeps going from there. Um, you know, my final thoughts... Uh, even if it isn't a true sequel to Phoenix, Pleiades should be, without a doubt. Um, I find I like playing this game more than Phoenix, and I like playing Phoenix quite a bit. Um, the arcade in Brighton had both machines standing side by side, and I would play Pleiades more than Phoenix. This game is simpler and more challenging than its erstwhile predecessor, and also more rewarding. Uh, the game's a classic, in my opinion. That's just how I feel about it. I mean, I've loved this game for a long time, and I mean, just before I decided to start recording, I was playing it just to sort of get myself in the right mindset, you know what I mean? And I was still having fun playing it. So yeah, that's uh, my thoughts on Pleiades. Uh, a little bit of past history, my experiences with it, and also my tips and tricks on how to get decent at the game. Uh, if you've got any thoughts of your own, and you know any sort of uh strategies that you can come you, you have that work for you by all means get a hold of me arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com all right and now we're going to go into uh the last segment of the show which is home systems there's no place like home Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Home Systems. The Sega Genesis. Now, I like I said when I did Home Systems for the uh, Super Nintendo, I should have done the Genesis first because the Genesis came out first. But, you know, <laughs> I'm only human. I make mistakes just like everybody else. So, you know, I'm going to make up for that uh, oversight right now. Uh, once again, going into Wikipedia for the information. The Sega Genesis, also known as the Mega Drive outside North America, is a 16-bit fourth-generation home video game console developed and sold by Sega. Uh, the Genesis is Sega's third console and the successor to the Master System. Sega released it as the Mega Drive in Japan in 1988 and later as the Genesis in North America in 1989. In 1990, it was distributed as the Mega Drive by Mer Virgin Mastertronic in Europe, Ozzy Soft in Australasia, and Tech Toy in Brazil. 
in South Korea. It was distributed by Samsung as the Super Gam Boy and later the Super Aladdin Boy. Designed by an R&D team supervised by Hideki Sato and Masami Ishikawa, the Genesis was adapted from Sega's 16, System 16 arcade board centered on a Motorola 68000 processor as a CPU, a Z-Log Z80 as a sound controller, and a video system supporting hardware sprites, tiles, and scrolling. It plays a library of more than 900 games created by Sega and a wide array of a wide array of third-party publishers developed, delivered on ROM-based cartridges. Several add-ons were released, including a power-based converter to play Master System games. It was released in several different versions, some created by third parties. Sega created two networks to support the Genesis, the Sega MegaNet and Sega Channel. In Japan, the Mega Drive fared poorly against its two main competitors, Nintendo Super Famicom and NEC's PC Engine, also known as the TurboGrafx-16, but it achieved considerable success in North America, Brazil, and Europe. Contributing to, contributing to its success were its library of arcade game ports, the popularity of Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog series, several popular sports franchises, and aggressive youth marketing that positioned the system as the cool console for adolescents. The North American release in 1991 of the Super Famicom, rebranded as the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, resulted in a fierce battle, battle for market share in the United States and Europe that has also often been termed as a console war by journalists and historians. As this contest in, drew increasing attention to the video game industry among the general public, the Genesis and several of its highest profile games attracted significant legal scrutiny on matters involving reverse engineering and video game violence. Controversy surrounding violent games such as Night Trap and Mortal Kombat led Sega to create the Video Game Rating Council, a predecessor to the Entertainment Software Rating Board. 30.5 million first-party Genesis units were sold worldwide. In addition, Tectoy sold an estimated 3 million licensed variants in Brazil. Majesco would projected it would sell 1.5 million licensed variants of the system in the United States, and much smaller numbers were sold by Samsung in South Korea. By the mid-2010s, licensed third-party Genesis re-releases were still being sold by At Games in North America and Europe. Many games have been re-released in compilations or on online services such as Nintendo Virtual Console, Xbox Live Arcade, PlayStation Network, and Steam. The Genesis was succeeded in 1994 by the Sega Saturn. Okay, let's see. In the early 1980s, Sega Enterprises Incorporated, then a subsidiary of Gulf Western, was one of the top five arcade game manufacturers active in the United States as company revenues surpassed $200 million between July 1981 and June 1982. That's impressive for that time, that's for sure. Uh, a downturn in the arcade business starting in 1982 seriously hurt the company, leading Gulf and Western to sell its North American arcade manufacturing organization and the licensing rights for its arcade games to Bally Manufacturing. The company retained Sega's North American R&D operation, as well as its Japanese subsidiary, Sega Enterprises Limited. Uh, with its arcade business in decline, Sega Enterprises Limited president Hayao Nakayama uh, advocated that the company leverage its hardware expertise to move into the console market in Japan, which was its in its in infancy at the time. Uh, let's see. 
Nakayama received permission to proceed with this project, leading to the release of Sega's first home video game system, the SG-1000, in July 1983. While it had sold 160,000 units in Japan, far exceeding Sega's expectations, sales at the stores were dominated by Nintendo's Famicom, which been, had been released on the same day. <laughs> I don't think that was uh, accidental. Uh, let's see. Sega estimated that the Famicom outsold the SG-1000 by a 10 to 1 margin. Uh, the SG-1000 was replaced by the Sega Mark III within two years. In the meantime, Gulf and Western began to divest itself of its non-core businesses after the death of company founder Charles Bluedorn. Uh, so Yakiyama and Forgus Sega CEO David Rosen arranged a management buyout of the Japanese subsidiary in 1984 with financial backing from CSK Corporation, a prominent Japanese software company. Nakayama was then installed as CEO of Sega Enterprises Limited. That's interesting. I did not know any of that. That's very interesting uh, information there. Okay, in 1986, Sega re redesigned the Mark III for release in North America as the Master System. This was followed by a European release the next year. Although the Master System was a su success in Europe and later in Brazil, it failed to si ignite significant interest in the Japanese or North American ma markets, which by the mid to late 1980s were both dominated by Nintendo. With Sega continuing to have difficulty penetrating the home market, Sega's uh, console R&D team, led by Masami Ishikawa and supervised by Hideki Sato, began work on its successor to the Master System almost immediately after that console launched. In 1987, Sega faced another threat to its console business when Japanese computer giant NEC released the PC Engine amid great publicity. To remain competitive against the two more established consumer electronics companies, Ishikawa and his team decided they need to incorporate a 16-bit microprocessor into their new system to make an impact in the marketplace, and once again, Sega returned to Sega's strengths in the arcade industry to adapt the successful Sega System 16 arcade board into architecture for a home console. The decision to use a Motorola 68000 as the system's main CPU was made late in development, while a Zilog Z80 was used as a secondary CPU to handle the sound due to fears that the load to the main CPU would be too great if it handled both the visuals and the audio. The 68000 chip was expensive and would have driven the retail price of the console up greatly, but Sega was able to negotiate with the distributor for a tenth of its price on an upfront volume order with the promise of more orders pending the console's future success. That's taking a chance and it paid off for him. Uh, let's see. The appearance of the Mega Drive was designed by a team led by Mitsushige Shiraiwa that drew inspiration from audiophile equipment and automobiles. Shiraiwa said that this more mature look helped to target the Mega Drive to all ages, unlike the Famicom, which was primarily aimed at children. According to Sato, the Japanese design for the Mega Drive was based on the appearance of an audio player with a 16-bit embossed in gold metallic veneer to create an impression of power. <laughs> Smart. Let's see. The console was announced in the June 1988 issue of the Japanese gaming magazine Beep as the Mark V, but Sega management wanted a stronger name. After reviewing more than 300 proposals, the company settled on Mega Drive. In North America, the name was changed to Genesis. 
Rosen said that he insisted on the name as he disliked Mega Drive and wanted to represent a quote-unquote new beginning for Sega. Sato said some of the design elements changed, such as the gold-colored 16-bit wording, because it was believed that the color would be mistaken for yellow. He believes that the changes in design are representative of the differences in values between Japanese and American culture. Very interesting. Sega released the Mega Drive in Japan on October 29, 1988, though the launch was overshadowed by Nintendo's release of Super Mario Bros. 3 a week earlier. Positive coverage from uh, magazines Famitsu and Beep helped to establish a following, but Sega only managed to ship 400,000 units in the first year. In order to increase sales, Sega released various peripherals and games, including an online banking system and answering machine called Sega Mega Answer. Wow. Uh, nevertheless, the Mega Drive was un unable to overtake the venerable Famicom and remain a distant third in, ja in Japan behind Nintendo's Super Famicom and NEC's PC Engine throughout the 16-bit era. Sega announced a North American release date for the system on January 9, 1989. At the time, Sega did not possess a North American sales and marketing organization and was distributing its master system through Tonka. Dissatisfied with Tonka's performance, Sega new looked for a new partner to market the Genesis of North America and offered the rights to Atari Corporation, which did not yet have a 16-bit system. David Rosen made the proposal to Atari CEO Jack Tramiel and the president of Atari's uh, entertainment electronics division, Michael Katz. Tramiel declined to acquire the new console, deeming it too expensive, and instead opted to focus on the Atari ST. Ugh, I think that was a bad decision. Uh, Sega decided to launch the console through its own Sega of America subsidiary, which executed a limited launch on August 14, 1989 in New York, New York City and Los Angeles. The Genesis was released in the rest of North America later that year. The European version was released in September 1990 at a price of 189.99 British pounds sterling. Uh, the release was handled by Virgin Mastertronic, which was later purchased by Sega in 1991 and became Sega of Europe. Games like Space Harrier 2, Ghouls and Ghosts, Golden Axe, Super Thunderblade, and The Revenge of Shinobi were available in stores at launch. The console was also bundled, bundled with Altered Beast. Uh, the Mega Drive and its first batch of games were shown at the 1990 European Computer Entertainment Show in Earl's Court. Between July and August 1990, Virgin initially placed their order of 20,000 Mega Drive units. However, the company increased the order by 10,000 units when advanced orders had exceeded expectations and another 10,000 units was later added following the console's success at the ECES event. The projected number of units sold between September and December 1990 had eventually increased to 40,000 units in the United Kingdom alone. Other companies assisted in distributing the console to various countries worldwide. Ozzysoft handled the Mega Drive's launch and marketing in Australia, as it had done before with the Master System. In Brazil, the Mega Drive was released by Tectoy in 1990, only a year after, after the Brazilian release of the Master System. Tectoy produced games exclusively for the Brazilian market and brought the Sega MegaNet online service there in 1995. In India, Sega entered a distribution deal with Shaw Wallace in April 1994 in order to circumvent an 80% import tariff with each unit selling for 18,000 Indian rupees. I think that's what, what the 
what the uh, currency is. Uh, Samsung handled sales and con- distribution in Korea, where it was named the Super, Super Game Boy and retained the Mega Drive logo alongside the Samsung name. It was later renamed to the Super Aladdin Boy. For the North American market, former Atari Corporation Entertainment Electronics Division President and new Sega of America CEO Michael Katz instituted a two-part approach to build sales in the region. A first part involved a marketing campaign to challenge Nintendo head-on and emphasize the more arcade-like experience available on the Genesis, summarized by slogans including, Genesis does what Nintendo don't. (laughs) <laughs> I remember those commercials. Yeah, they were rather aggressive. Uh, let's see. You can look those up on, on YouTube. I'm certain they're there. Um, since Nintendo owned the console rights to most arcade games of the time, the second part involved creating a library of instantly recognizable games which used the names and likenesses of celebrities and athletes such as Pat Riley Basketball, Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf, James Bustler Buster Douglas Knockout Boxing, Joe Montana Football, Tommy Lasorda Baseball, Mario Lemieux Hockey, and Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Nonetheless, it had a hard time overcoming Sega's, or excuse me, overcoming Nintendo's ubiquitous presence in consumers' homes. Tasked by Nakayama to sell 1 million units within the first year, Cats in Sega of America managed to sell only 500,000 units. Okay... In mid-1990, Nakayama hired Tom Kalinske to replace Katz as CEO of Sega of America. Although Kalinske initially knew little about the video game market, he surrounded himself with industry-savvy advisors. A believer, a believer in the Razor and Blades business model, he developed a four-point plan. Cut the price of the console, create a U.S.-based team to v- develop games targeted at the American market, continue and expand the aggressive advertising campaigns and replace the bundle game Alter Beast with a new game Sonic the Hedgehog. That was a wise move. Just that one. The Japanese board of directors initially disapproved of the plan but all four points were approved by Nakayama who who told Kalinske, I hired you to make decisions for Europe and the Americas so go ahead and do it. End quote. Magazines praised Sonic as one of the greatest games yet made, and Sega's console finally took off as customers who had been waiting waiting for the release of the international version of Nintendo Super Famicom, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, decided to purchase a Genesis instead. That's true. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Nintendo's console debuted against an established competitor, while NEC's TurboGrafx-16 failed to gain traction, and NEC soon pulled out of the market. In large part due to the popularity of Sonic the Hedgehog, the Genesis outsold the SNES in the United States nearly 2 to 1 during the 1991 holiday season. This success led to Sega having control of 60, 65% of the 16-bit console market in January 1992, making it the first time Nintendo was not the console leader since December 1985. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's see. To compete with Nintendo... Uh, Sega was more open to new types of games than its rival, but still tightly controlled the approval process for third-party games and charged high prices for cartridge manufacturing. Bad move. Uh, Let's see. Technicians from America third-party video game publisher Electronic Arts reverse-engineered the Genesis in 1989, following nearly one year of negotiation with Sega, in which EA requested a more liberal, liberal licensing agreement that was standard in the industry before releasing its game for the system. Wow. 
The clean room reverse engineering was led by Steve Hayes and Jim Nichols, lasting several months before EA secretly began video game development. Wow, I didn't know that either. Sneaky. <laughs> EA founder Trip Hawkins confronted Nakayama with this information one day prior to the 1990 Consumer Electronics Show, noting that EA had the ability to run its own licensing program and Sega refused to meet its demands. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, hardcore. Okay, um, Sega relented, and the next day, EA's upcoming Genesis games were showcased at CES. EA signed what Hawkins described as, quote, a very unusual and much more enlightened licensing agreement, unquote, with Sega in June 1990. Quote, among other things, we had the right to make as many titles as we wanted. We could approve our own titles. The royalty rates were a lot more reasonable. We also had more direct control over manufacturing, end quote. After the deal was in place, e EA Chief Creative Officer Bing Gordon learned that, quote, we hadn't figured out all the workarounds, and quote, Sega had the, the, still had the ability to lock us out, end quote, noting it would just have been a public relations fiasco, end quote. E EA released its first two Genesis games, Populous and Budokan the Martial Spirit, within the month. The first Genesis version of EA's John Madden Football arrived before the end of 1990 and became what Gordon called a killer app for the system. Uh, taking advantage of the licensing agreement, Gordon and EA's Vice President of Marketing Services, Nancy Fong, created a visual identifier for EA's Genesis cartridges. Uh, a yellow stripe on the left side added during manufacturing. Sega was able to outsell Nintendo four Christmas seasons in a row due to the Genesis having a two-year lead, a lower price point, and a larger game library as compared to the SNES at its release. Sega had 10 games for, 10 games for every game on the SNES, while SNES had the, an inclusive version of Final Fight. One of Sega's internal development teams created Streets of Rage, which had bigger levels, tougher enemies, and a well-regarded soundtrack. Uh, ASCII Entertainment reported in early 1993 that Sega had 250 games versus 75 for the SNES, but limited shelf space meant that the stores typically offered 100 Genesis and 50 SNES games. NES, the NES was still the leader with 300 games and 100 on the shelves. Sega, Sega's advertising positioned the Genesis as the cooler console and coined the term blast processing an obscure and an unused graphics programming method to suggest that its processing capabilities were far greater than those of the SNES. A, so a Sony focus group found that teenage boys would not admit to owning a SNES rather than a Genesis. With the Genesis often outselling the SNES by a ratio of 2 to 1, Nintendo and Sega both focused heavily on impression management of the market, even going to the point of deception, with Nintendo claiming it had sold more consoles in 1991 than it actually had, and forecasting it would sell 6 million consoles by the end of 1992, while its actual U.S. install base at the end of 1992 was only just more than 4 million units. Due to these tactics, it was difficult to ascertain a clear leader in market share for several years at a time, with, Sega, with Nintendo's dollar share of the U.S. 16-bit market dipping down from 60% at the end of 92 to 37% at the end of 1993, uh, Sega claiming 55% of all 16-bit hardware sales during 1994, and Donkey Kong Country helping the SNES to outsell the Genesis from 1995 through 1997. 
according to a 2004 study of NPT sales data. The Genesis was able to maintain its lead over the Super NES in the American 16-bit console market. However, according to a 2014 Wedbush Securities report based on revised NPD sales data, the SNES outsold the Genesis in the U.S. market. <laughs> wow. I mean, I knew that there was a massive war between Sega and Genesis starting when the Genesis came out. Um, but yeah, that's just a whole different level. <laughs> that just goes to a whole different level just reading all of that information and of course there's more information about uh the company and sonic the hedgehog and all that but i don't think that's relevant to uh this podcast so i will just cut it there um my own experiences uh it goes from the beginnings of the system to the late 90s um, of course, I'd heard of the Genesis system in the late 80s, but at the time I couldn't afford one as the original sticker price was too high for me. Uh, my friend Walter, uh, who lived near me, ha uh, had a friend near him who had one. And every so often I would get invited to go over that to, to that guy's house to play Genesis games. Um, I remember playing games like Laser Lakers versus Celtics and having lots of fun doing so as we would take our favorite teams and battle it out. Um, after that, I didn't have a lot of experiences with the system until I moved to Florida in 1993 and I met my roommate. <laughs> I used to go over her parents' house when she would uh, vi visit in Melbourne and we'd play games like Shining Force, which is one of my all-time favorite strategy RPGs. And then again, when we lived, uh, when I moved in with her in Orlando, um, she would bring games home from her job all the time to play. Uh, when we parted ways in 1996, she gave me her Genesis system to keep along with several games. I had bought a few games for it myself by this time, like um, NBA Live 96, which I maintain is the best basketball game for that system, bar none, and uh, Super Street Fighter 2. I would constantly play games on that system until it was stolen from me by, my, by another former roommate around the year 2000. Uh, I love this system, and I've always differentiated it from the SNES in that while the SNES games looked and sounded slightly better, the Genesis games played better, and I was all about gameplay. <laughs> and that's just the truth. So, yeah, that's the Genesis. Uh, there's a big chunk of its history and my personal uh, experiences with the system. Um, I'm sure that in my listening audience, there are people who are of an age who owned a genesis system uh get at me tell me what you thought of it did you own were you one of those lucky kids who owned both of them if you did tell me what who, what you thought was better and why arcade addict brian at gmail.com okay and that will bring episode 27 to a close i will try to get this up by the middle of this week coming up it's now early Sunday morning, uh, June 21st. So hopefully I'll get it up by this coming Wednesday or Thursday. We'll see. So anyway, until we get together for episode 28, this is Brian saying, have fun out there. Good gaming. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Attic podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time.
next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.